Bitcoin wastes energy. You've heard it a million times. But what if it's the exact opposite of the truth in almost every way? What if it's actually our energy grid that is wasteful and Bitcoin can fix it? What if it's renewable energy that is unreliable and uneconomical and Bitcoin mining can balance it out? What if it's fiat that's wasteful and unfair and Bitcoin can correct it? And what if the entire premise is built upon the failure to even understand what it is that Bitcoin does? I think it's time for a Guy's Take episode. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. This episode is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin and CoinKite. Swan Bitcoin, if you were looking for the place to buy Bitcoin or plug your business, your private, your retirement, your savings, everything about your life into Bitcoin, Swan Bitcoin is the place to go. And CoinKite is where you are going to get the device, the hardware security device that is going to keep it safe. The cold card hardware wallet is absolutely one of my favorites. I love it and the tap signer. I use the tap signer more than anything, another CoinKite device. They are amazing. You have to check them out and you can get 9% off with my discount code. All the details and links will be in the show notes. And we are digging into, we are going back to the FUD series today which I have sat on for quite some time, uh, but I wanted a good precursor for it. And yesterday's read, or I guess the end of last week's read by Alex Gladstein, I thought was perfect to frame out as a, as a prerequisite to this conversation about Bitcoin, quote-unquote, wasting energy. Because Alex Gladstein's piece called Stranded, uh, I think is such a prominent, it's such a solid real-world example of exactly why and how Bitcoin is such an extraordinary tool and a unique tool for actually utilizing the staggering amounts of wasted energy that we have around the world. And both by referencing that and going through some of the things that he uh, laid out and found in Bundu and other places in Africa, and also by exploring many of the arguments and pieces that we have covered, I don't even know, 40 or so pieces on the topic of energy, the complexity of the grids, all of these sorts of things, and why Bitcoin fits is, is just kind of a Lego piece that fits so perfectly into one of the most critical things that both stabilizing an energy, energy grid needs and also monetizing disparate energy, energy that is too disconnected, uh, too uneconomical for the current, me the current mode of delivery and the current distance and geographic limitations of the delivery and access of energy sources. So I want to make the case here today that Bitcoin does not waste energy. Bitcoin saves wasted energy and manages to accomplish that task in an economically sustainable way while subsidizing renewable energy sources and solving the monetary problems of billions of people around the world. 
to the contrary of Bitcoin wasting energy, all of the energy wasted on fiat should be redirected towards Bitcoin for the good of the environment and for the good of humanity. So we'll kick this off with what I consider the biggest disconnect in this argument or the biggest correlation, so to speak, is that the people inevitably who I hear that who I hear say and hold steadfastly to the claim that Bitcoin wastes energy cannot universally cannot tell me what Bitcoin does, which means their entire claim is built on the fact that they know nothing about it. It requires that Bitcoin is nothing because they think it is nothing, because they think it is valueless. Therefore, any energy that it uses, it's not about like it uses too much energy. If it used as much as a 40 watt light bulb, those people would still think it wasted energy because they have no idea what it is, what it does, or why it needs energy in the first place. If you cannot measure or don't even understand the output, you have no idea what the thing does, but you can see that it's using energy, then of course you think it's wasting energy because you have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, if I saw a generator that was turning gas into electricity, but I did not know what electricity was, I did not know how to measure electricity, I did not know how to even plug something into the output of the generator in order to turn on a light, or run a stove or a refrigerator or whatever it is that I needed to do with that electricity. If I just saw gas going in, a whole bunch of noise happening, and then the gas disappearing, I would just look at the generator and I would say, it's just wasting energy. But the problem here is not the generator, it's that I'm too stupid to know what I am looking at. And I don't even say that in, to, to suggest that everybody who doesn't know what Bitcoin does or they don't understand it, that they're stupid. I have not only is that not stupidity, that is simple ignorance, and ignorance is universal. Everyone is ignorant of everything until they aren't. Like, that's just the natural state of human existence and how the brain and reality works. There is no escaping it. If you don't understand what Bitcoin is, I, I didn't understand what Bitcoin was until I spent an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out what it does and why it does the things that it does. But I couldn't possibly know those things ahead of time. I try to have patience for ignorance because everyone is ignorant. I am ignorant for all of the things that I have not spent an inordinate amount of time studying or trying to understand. There is no shame and there should be no judgment in that. If you don't understand anything about Bitcoin, you don't understand anything about Bitcoin. There's nothing wrong with that. You're not stupid. But if you hold a vicious, angry, stubborn opinion about Bitcoin when you can't tell me what it does, that I don't have patience for. That you can and should be judged for. So for anyone who thinks that Bitcoin wastes energy, just ask yourself, do you understand what Bitcoin does? Do you understand what Bitcoin provides and why or how valuable that thing is? And unfortunately, just in a general sense, this doesn't really work all the time because you don't know what you don't know. I'm amazed at how many people are like, what are the, what's the point of Bitcoin? And they, they'll say Bitcoin wastes energy. And it's like, oh, well, the point of Bitcoin is for it to go up for, so that people can make more dollars. I'm about 99% convinced that these, the people who believe this have never had a conversation with a Bitcoiner. And they have pulled this perception of Bitcoiners entirely from other people who also have never had a conversation with a Bitcoiner. 
or they have had a conversation with a crypto bro, somebody who is trading a bunch of random crypto tokens, and they are certain that this is the exact same thing as Bitcoin, that, that this is all just one big happy family and we all do the same thing and we all think the same thing. And I say that because every single Bitcoiner I have talked to and every single person who has talked to me will get nine hours of lecture on monetary history, economics, Austrian theory, the business cycle, philosophy, cypherpunks, you name it. Everything except the price is what I, there is nothing to talk about with the price. The price is boring as shit. And I do not know a single person who I would ever consider a Bitcoiner, somebody who actually knows why this, thing's, this thing exists, who is looking to get more dollars. Dollars are absolute trash. And a Bitcoiner will go out of their way to explain thoroughly to until you are sick, until you want to order them an Uber just so that they will go away and stop talking about. They will tell you everything about why they do not want dollars ever again. And if they ever have dollars, they get rid of them as quickly as possible. Nobody here actually wants more dollars. I think you were talking about crypto people. So this is all just a preface. And if you if you're actually new to this argument, and or you're new to Bitcoin and you choose not to believe it, well, then you've chosen to believe what you think about something you don't understand rather than what the Bitcoiner himself is telling you the reasons are. I do expect Bitcoin to get more purchasing power, but I will never, ever, ever, ever sell it for more dollars so that I can hold the dollars. The dollar is trash money. They are slave tokens. If you work your butt off to get pieces of paper, to get points in a digital system that somebody else can just invent trillions of for free at a stroke of a pen, at the push of a button, you are that person's slave. You are that person's slave. You work for the thing that they do nothing for. You simply provide them with the things that they want so that you can get digital points that require them to contribute absolutely nothing to the economic agreement. You give them work and value, they give you nothing. The only reason it's useful at all is because you can trade with the other slaves. That's it. Fiat money is just slave tokens. So if you want to understand what Bitcoin provides, what it does, regardless of all the operate, internal operations, why proof of work is a part of it, how mining works and block times and all this stuff, there's a very, very, very simple understanding for what Bitcoin does. Fiat money is a dynamic where the person who has to get the tokens works for them. They do make and create value, and then give it to the person who can just create the tokens out of thin air. Whether that's the financial system that's able to leverage it, whether it's the central bank, whether it's the government that can just run in impossible and endless deficits, it's all just pointless dancing and layers of complexity on top of the underlying fact. One person works and provides all the things, the other person gets them and has to provide nothing in return. What Bitcoin does that makes it valuable is it is an accounting system, a system of trade that simply ensures neither party can get something for free. That's it. 
All it does is ensure that the trading system is honest and everyone plays by the same rules. All of that energy expenditure is simply part of the system that ensures it, and you can't take it out. It's, it's core to the very reason why it works. Bitcoin is a solution for slave money that replaces it with trade money. I mean, if you want to understand like why fiat is slave money, just take money out of the equation. Like, let's say you work in a field. You grow and pick food, strawberries, cotton, apples, whatever it is. And you do this with a lot of other people. And you can trade with each other. I can trade my apples for your oranges. You and I, in this instance, are equal, and we both had to contribute something into the economic system. You had to contribute oranges to me, and I had to contribute apples to you in order for the trade to actually happen. Well, what about the money printer? What about the dude who's printing the fiat money? Well, you take money out of the equation, I'm just giving him apples and you're just giving him oranges. And that's it. And we are not legally allowed to refuse to do so. We are forced by government and will be put in a cage. And if we resist going into the cage, we will be shot and killed for not accepting the tokens of the slave owner. That's a slave. That is a slave. And it just doesn't matter. The only reason we're not slaves to the degree of slavery, slavery at 1850 is just because we produce so much that they just can't consume it all. Basically, the structure of these systems of control found out that if you leave enough of it for the slave to actually use for themselves and let the slave get wealthier, there's more to steal. It's just good management for the farm. You want, if, if I, if leaving me with you know, 60% of my apples means that I'm going to make twice as many apples next year, well, then that means that the 40 apples that I had to give the slave owner will get 80 next year. Again, without doing anything, without contributing anything at all, he is the counterfeiter, we are the slaves. What Bitcoin does is it creates a system for the token, for the money itself, to be independent of the person who controls the money system. It creates that same arrangement where I can trade my apples uh, with your oranges or your cotton for my cattle, and the slave owner simply isn't part of the equation. They either bring strawberries to the table in order to trade with us or something else of value, or they don't get anything because they can't cheat the money anymore. That is the value that Bitcoin provides. It is the solution to monetary-based slavery. Now, if you think that is a waste of energy, then likely you're just having a really difficult time coming to terms with the fact that you're a slave. And I admit, that's a very, very hard reality to swallow. But like it or not, that is how the system works. There's a group of people who print money, and get as much value, ownership of assets, and all of the things that we strive to have at some point in our lives for free at no cost. They cheat the money in order to get and own all of the stuff. And they give that money essentially for free to a huge group of financial banking class, corporate and banking class, who get that money essentially for free, or even more psychotically, for periods, they got negative interest rates, which means that they borrowed money and got paid to do so. And they turn around and loan that money 
to us as if they're providing us with some sort of a benefit or service. And they buy up all of our real estate, all of our retirement accounts, the, the stocks and equity and all of the, the capital forming companies that are out there. They own all of the assets. They bid up the prices of all of the things that we need to live and survive. Our rent goes up. Our mortgages go up. The cost of all of our goods and services go up. We get poor and have to work harder. They own everything and they get richer by default because they own the assets and the assets go up in prices as they buy more assets with the newly counterfeited currency that they essentially get for free. That's slavery. No matter what we do collectively, we can never own more of it than they do. It's like a football game where no matter how hard we play, they always just get more points. Just for, just for their time of being on the field. They don't have to do anything. They don't even have to play the game. They can hire other people to just kind of get in our way and slow us down. And Alex Gladstein's piece could not be a more perfect example of just what an insanity this sort of slavery system actually is capable of. And most of the time, they don't do this, at least in Western nations, specifically because they would likely be killed by the herd. You know, if the farmer went out and just started whipping the cattle and then the, it sent the cattle into a frenzy and they charged over and killed the, the farmer, well, that wouldn't happen very much, right? They wouldn't do that. That doesn't mean that because they're slightly nice to the cattle that they don't own the cattle. The situation is still the same. It's simply that the cattle are, are a little bit more powerful than the farmer would like. But it's actually shockingly common for that sort of behavior in the developing world and in smaller authoritarian nations and specifically in nations that are beholden to the IMF and the World Bank because of this scheme, which if you uh, look into what's the other Alex Gladstein piece, uh, what's the title of that one? Structural Adjustment. That's right. Structural Adjustment uh, about the, the IMF and World Bank repressing the developing world. But essentially, it amounts to loaning them impossible debts, which they can never actually pay off, and then requiring them to devalue the currency in order to pay it off, or, or in order to deleverage the loan that they can no longer afford in order to get the next loan that is just going to delay and require another deleveraging, quote-unquote, uh, which is the devaluing of the currency. And the example that Gladstein gave in this piece in particular from Stranded, from yesterday's or from uh, a Friday's read that we did, uh, is embodied in this quote. And here's the crazy thing about this, is this is common. This is something that happens in these countries often. We've seen this in Argentina. We've seen this in uh, Yemen. We've seen this in Zimbabwe. We've seen this in, uh, in Lebanon in Nigeria, in Angola, in, uh, in Turkey. And this has happened all across Africa because of the situation with the, the Sifa Frank system, which again, going back to, Gladstein is the best, best resource for this, going back to the IMF piece and structural adjustment, and then also check your financial privilege. I mean, he has just done a masterwork of pulling all of this information together and detailing out this history and a lot of the major major events and major 
consequences, like the amount of capital that flows out of the developing world because of the Western world's, because of the IMF and the World Bank's scheme to literally keep them poor. The net flows are out, out, not in. This is not, this is not aid. This is not a benefit. This is not investment. This is taking their assets and pulling the value out of their country. A total of like 62 trillion dollars over like some period like 50 years has flown out of the developing world into the western nations 62 trillion dollars this is not for their benefit this is a scam this is milking them using the currency but i want to hit the quote from stranded that specifically just kind of hits the the specifics of what is going on here says, so one Wednesday morning in November of 2023, the 20 million citizens of Malawi woke up to find their currency devalued by 44%. The government and IMF argued that the move would boost exports and stabilize the economy. But for the average person, all they felt was an immediate decrease in purchasing power. Many merchants simply closed for the day, as employees needed time to recreate the price labels used everywhere from gas stations to grocery stores. This was not, like in Argentina, something that most people could escape. In Argentina, there is a widely accessible and sophisticated black market for dollars. In Malawi, this doesn't exist. People are stuck in the quacha. According to the country's reserve bank, 85% of Malawians are unbanked meaning nearly everyone uses paper quacha notes in issued by the government as their main store of value and medium of exchange. Devaluation here remains an effective way to steal from the population. This is an incredible degree of theft. This is what this system enables. This is as if you can reach into everyone's safe, into everyone's stockpile of capital, and just taking, and just, just, straight up stealing half of it just in a, in a moment's notice stealing half of the currency back to the situation of the people working in the fields and the slave owner this is if i have my stockpile of apples and you have your stockpile of oranges and really literally while we are in the middle of making a trade someone is just able to wave a magic wand and take half of my apples and half of your oranges Understand, this is not possible with physical apples and oranges. This is only possible with the money. Because the design, the very structure of the money, is made to enable this. This is how it works when you have someone who can control the accounting system of society. They can simply delete. They can simply confiscate. It's not even deleting. If they just destroyed the apples and oranges, that would be bad enough. But they take them for themselves. It, the, the purchasing power doesn't disappear. It shifts to someone else. It shifts to the counterfeiter and to the monetary issuer. For any people who are able to access the Bitcoin network, it will literally protect you from this. This is the norm in the fiat world. This is par for the course for all fiat currencies. And it is purely purely a question of degree and the size of the network. That is it. Every fiat currency devalues in exactly this way. Every single fiat currency devalues because of the money printer uh, and the, the counterfeiter, the owner, the slave owner who owns the monetary system and can counterfeit as many units as they, as they can and want 
in order to get themselves out of a bind, in order to confiscate and use as many resources as they see, as they see fit. The sole difference is the size of the network. And if you want to think about why that changes things, if you have a bathtub and a five-gallon bucket, if you dump a five-gallon bucket in a bathtub, it's going to make not only very, very big waves, but it is also going to massively change the water level, the relative water level inside of that bathtub. You can think of this as a small network with a large amount of money printing. Now imagine dumping that five-gallon bucket into a pool, like an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Not only would, on the other side of the pool, would you not even really notice the waves, just because naturally the wind blows a little bit, there's going to be a little bit of waves. You're, you're not even going to realize that somebody dumped five gallons, a five-gallon bucket in, uh, of water into the pool. But nobody is going to have a clue that the water level changed. It's going to be very minor. That's how you can visualize the difference between the dollar and something like the quacha. The dollar's network is huge. It is huge. It is very liquid. No pun intended with the whole pool analogy. And any movement of water into and out of the pool can move enormous amounts of water, whole bathtubs worth of water, you know, what would be the equivalent of entire developing countries. You know, we print where our deficit is like $2 trillion or something stupid. It's bigger than the GDPs of entire, you know, groups of countries in the developing world. But the inflation happens slowly. The inflation is 5%, 7%, 15%. And it's also uneven. Just like if you dump a bucket of water into a pool, the waves right where the bucket is poured are going to be high, but on the other side of the pool, it's not going to be. This is why in cities, in D.C., inflation is insane. You know, it's just to get you know new shingles on your house might cost $50,000, but to get new shingles on the exact same house in, you know, Wyoming costs you like four grand. This has a lot more to do with how money flows through society and how quickly it moves from one area to another than people realize. And because the, the quote-unquote waves are the movement and trade of capital, of people, the houses get bit up in Wyoming when people realize that their one-bedroom apartment in D.C. that they're paying, or in New York City or something, that they're paying $3,000, $5,000 a month for will get them half a million dollars or a million dollar house with like 10 bedrooms in Wyoming, they move to a place like Wyoming and they bid up the price. But the movement doesn't happen very quickly and it doesn't happen a lot. These are specifically rural areas where there isn't a massive inflow of people and new capital. Therefore, inflation is incredibly slow. The water doesn't move evenly throughout the society. Then there's places like Malawi, where half of all of the wealth is confiscated basically overnight to save the political and wealthy class at the explicit cost of the middle and lower classes. It is just slavery. Because the poor and the middle class pay for all of the debts and losses of the wealthy and the political. Whenever there is a systemic imbalance, something that threatens the wealthy and political class, the middle class and the poor pay for it because they're just going to screw the currency. Bitcoin fixes this. Bitcoin is the solution to this problem first and foremost because it is the greatest problem in the world. It enables 
and creates the consequences of this system, the consequences of that imbalance, of the slow trickle from the middle and lower classes in every country, in every fiat system of capital from the middle and lower classes up to the corporate and financial classes, is a product of how our money works. Fundamentally, Bitcoin is a solution to that by making a money that doesn't work like that, where their insolvency can only be paid by them unless they directly attack each and every person, rather than screwing with the accounting system overnight without anybody's actually knowing it or being aware of it or any involvement whatsoever, they would have to actually go to everyone's house individually and steal half of all of the oranges and all of the apples and all of the strawberries and all of the meat and all of the cattle, everything. That is not even physically possible. And it almost certainly cannot be done without massive amounts of violence and resistance. This is why it's not done. This is why they all use a fiat currency system, because that's the way you can actually accomplish that at scale. With Bitcoin, this fundamental situation, this fundamental power dynamic is flipped on its head. So whatever we want to say, and all of the other issues we will talk about in energy today in this episode, which we are getting to, I promise, they all lie in the context of the fact that Bitcoin is designed to and is solving that problem. And I'll tell you right now, if Bitcoin wasn't good for energy production, if Bitcoin wasn't good for renewable energy, if Bitcoin didn't balance the grid and stabilize energy production and prices over time, and if Bitcoin used 10 times as much energy as it does today in order to run, it would still be worth it. And I would argue up and down, forward and backward, left and right, that it was worth every last kilowatt hour, even if it was all entirely lost with no positive externalities whatsoever. That would not bother me a bit because the problem it is solving is orders of magnitude bigger than even that cost. But ironically enough, I don't even have to do that because Bitcoin is one of the best things for energy stability and energy subsidy and investment of disparate energy sources as we have ever quite possibly ever had from an economically sustainable and value-add use case. And the great thing about Ubuntu and what is happening in Africa with Gridless is that it's not theory. This isn't a, oh, it could be, or maybe if it was like this, or I'm pretty sure at some point it will do this. This is an explicit, on-the-ground, actually working, actually bringing down the cost of energy, actually balancing the grid, actually making electricity economically viable for a community that otherwise would not have a way to get it right now. It literally proves all of the theories and all of the major elements that make this such a powerful thing for exactly this purpose that we have been talking about for five years on this podcast. So let's dig into the major elements. This show is brought to you by CoinKite and the Cold Card Hardware Wallet. If you want to hold your keys and keep your Bitcoin safe, and you don't want to have to think about, you know, the malware on your computer or how incredibly vulnerable your iPhone or Android device is, and you want those keys separate 
you want them air-gapped, CoinKite.com has what you are looking for. The cold card hardware wallet, the tap signer. I was just seeing videos of the cold card Q1 coming very soon. I'm super excited. I already did my pre-order. If you haven't, uh, it is available on the website. It is a BlackBerry-esque version of the cold card with a full keyboard. I am super excited. They even have a password manager on it. There's just so much to explore and unpack with CoinKite and the many Bitcoin hardware devices. But if you want to keep your Bitcoin safe and you want to know that it is your cold storage that no one can touch, grab yourself a cold card. And luckily you can get 9% off with code BitcoinAudible. The link and the details will be right in the show notes. Check them out. I want to read a, another quote from Stranded really quick. Uh, it says, quote, Elsewhere in Malawi, the national grid is broken. As of December 2023, people who receive power grid, excuse me, receive grid power, suffer from six to eight hours of load shedding per day, where huge swaths of the country's population are cut off from power by the electric company. But in Bundu, there is no load shedding. The mini grid is properly balanced by the Bitcoin miners. If there's not enough water power, Gridless's automated software turns the ASICs off. If there's too much water power from, for example, one of the tropical cyclones that periodically hammers the region, Gridless's ASIC operation eats it up. It's a small wonder that in Little Bundu, the electricity works more consistently than in the big cities. One night during my visit to Bundu, Carl asked me to pause as the sunset was fading, to look at the hills around us. The lights were all turning on, all across the foothills of Mount Mwanje. It was a powerful sight to see, and staggering to think that Bitcoin is helping to make it happen as it converts wasted energy into human progress. I love that quote from this piece, not only just for the, that moment of realization, of getting to see the, the lights turn on in a place that has historically been unable to provide and unable to afford power. Because this one little power station has the most complete load balance and most complete and quick, like automated, automated, in instantly and automated turn on and turn off load balancing in order to stabilize itself. What is powerful about a micro load balancer in this context is that you do not need the scale you normally would in order for a grid to be sustainable. It makes grids work. It makes electrical and energy systems work at a smaller scale because it can load balance incrementally. You can load balance with one ASIC. One at like 200 watts per device. Hell, you could even do it without turning the devices on and off. You could have them switch from normal power to low power, and you're even more profitable because at low power, the ASICs are more efficient. So let's say you need to load balance for like 30% of the power load. You need to actually cut those off on the ASICs. It would actually be better to turn all of those ASICs down from normal power at like 4,000 watts or something like that, or 3,500 watts, down to 2800 watts or something like that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure specifics and it's different for different devices, but you get the idea. You just turn down the power wattage 
But here's the crazy thing is they get more economically efficient when you do that. On low power, some of these miners are actually profitable. They're actually almost break even at like 13 to 18 kilowatt cents per kilowatt hour. And at the same time, they are earning a money that cannot be devalued, that cannot be unilaterally off in some distant land. Somebody types something into a keyboard or, you know, writes something down on a piece of paper and then half of its value is stolen. They're literally making apples. They're acquiring apples that cannot be taken from them by the slave owner. Let me frame it for you this way. They are solving a problem in a tiny village that the rest of the country is unable to solve at a smaller scale at which it should be more difficult to solve this problem and it's not costing them anything. They're getting paid for it and in that payment that they are getting, they are solving an even bigger problem of the devaluation and control over their own currency. They are either solving or massively balancing, mitigating three significant problems at the exact same time in an economically positive manner. And the crazy thing is there's practically nothing else that can do it at this scale and can switch on and off that quickly. Hashing, hashing the, the proof of work process is complete, completely progress less which means that every single hash, which, you know, at, you know, 70 tera hashes or whatever, you're talking about 70, what is it? What's a tera? Quadrillion? Trillion? I don't know, something like that. It's an ungodly number of hashes per second. And every single one of those, every one trillionth of a second is independent. It has nothing to do with the next one and it has nothing to do with the one before it, which is why you can cut it off. You can do a thousand hashes and cut it off. You can do... 30 quadrillion hashes and cut it off and none of them interrupt anything. None of them break some process that needs to be started over. The hashes are all independent and you can have them at any point in time and it does not matter. This is what makes it a brilliant load balancing tool and every hash is worth what a hash is worth comparatively to the rest of the Bitcoin network. Name me any other valuable, economically valuable service that people pay for that doesn't depend on some sort of a process. Tell me where you can watch two seconds of a movie and then not be pissed that the third second takes two hours until it comes back on. Or that ChatGPT gives you a fourth of your answer and then in 30 minutes it gives you the rest of the answer. There is nothing with that degree of granularity that is actually economically profitable. That is one of the most powerful things about Bitcoin as a load balancer. And arguably, it's even better than a battery if we had battery technology that was cheap enough and could scale enough to even do this job, which we don't even close. But even if we did, batteries leak. Bitcoin doesn't leak. One Bitcoin is one of 21 million always and forever. It will never change. Not to mention that batteries are extremely toxic at the same time and they require far more upfront energy and like you know huge mining operations in order to create whereas just flat chips like silicon chips in an asic an asic is the dumbest possible machine when it comes to a computing device it literally does one thing and like almost like 90% of the toxic problems and waste of like a smartphone or something like that is really just in the battery. It's in the battery and probably the screen. 
and a little bit of plastic and, you know, some extra components. ASICs don't have most of that. Doesn't have any batteries. There's no screen. There's not a whole lot of plastic. It's mostly just aluminum, a PCB board, and some silicon chips. So even in the context of electronic waste, which these things aren't wasted, I've bought, I just bought a seven or eight year old uh, S9 so that I could have a space heater down here because I can't run my what's miner while I'm in the basement. Because for anybody who doesn't know, for anybody who's coming from somewhere else, I heat my house with miners. I literally do this. What they talked about in Stranded, how they could uh, heat up or, or dehydrate the tea leaves and like these sorts of things, and they can use all of the excess heat. I heat my house. I, I have uh, in the air ducting in the attic, I have plugged in a what's miner up there, and it keeps the upstairs warm, and I have one down here that keeps it keeps it warm down here. It got down to like 30 degrees last night. It's pretty comfortable when I came down here. I think it was like 74 or 72 or something like that. But because I haven't modified the one down here for an external fan, it's just using the onboard fans, which are really loud. So I want to, when I come down here, I cut it off. But I have a S9, which supposedly is, you know, not even, you know, not even slightly efficient. You know, it's old hardware. It should be trash. But S9s are still going for like 70 or 100 bucks because people are buying them for heaters. Old ASICs almost never get thrown away until they literally get broken. The only time I've ever seen a massive amount of ASICs get thrown away and torn, like turned into just pure garbage, pure just waste for a landfill is when I watched a video of the government confiscating a bunch of mines and then using a bulldozer to run over all of the machines and just turn it into trash when every single one of those was usable. Every single one, I would have bought one of those. These people in Malawi could have bought 10 of them, 100 of them, in order to dry their tea leaves, and they would have gotten money. They would have gotten paid to dry their tea leaves, where before it was nothing but a cost. So we've hit one critical characteristic that makes Bitcoin a brilliant load balancer, one that is hard to compare to anything else out there. The fact that every hash is entirely independent it does not matter when you turn it on, when you turn it off, how long it's running, how long it's turned off. It is completely independent of any service. You don't need a customer who's willing to cut off their Netflix or a chat GPT user who doesn't need to use an LLM right now. It's not related to any direct service. It is, a, it is literally a collective pooled service which means that every miner can equally satisfy the service at any one point in time for the collective public utility that is Bitcoin. It is always there to use any excess energy whenever you need it, and it is always happy to let you cut it off, and it will do nothing to the network. Everything will be fine. You won't lose anything whenever you need the energy for a higher value purpose. So that's number one. Number two is that it pays you to do this. The Bitcoin network will always pay for hashes, both in the fees that I pay when I move my Bitcoin around and then in the new Bitcoin that are minted and created into the Bitcoin ecosystem in order to fairly distribute the money only to people who contribute value, only to people who secure the money from the cheaters. Because that's what mining does. It ensures that nobody can cheat the system. That that staggering amount of energy that is used to, that is, that is purchased by the Bitcoin network in order to gain the security of the Bitcoin assurances of the monetary system 
It essentially makes a force field around the past so that Bitcoin cannot be edited. So that's number two. It pays you to do this. It pays, for, it pays you for that benefit to the grid balancing. Three, it is location agnostic. Energy is a local phenomenon. Energy is a local thing. It's not globally fungible. It's, and energy is not the same everywhere. Neither its cost, neither uh, how it's gained or achieved or created. Transporting it is insanely costly and, ins and insanely inefficient. In fact, we didn't even have a means to transport it over long distances until AC, alternating current, was actually invented. And there, it requires massive amounts of transformers and amplifiers and balancers because as the, fur the further it goes, it drops off massively. So much so that the LNLL that we have talked about on this show before in the past did a, a huge kind of analysis on the relative balancing and efficiency of, of power grids around the world. And it, their estimate is that as much energy as we consume, all of the energy that we consume for TVs, refrigerators, you know, industrial purposes, all of it is matched by the amount of electricity that is lost just getting it from where it's created to where it's needed. It's just passively lost in the heat of the wires, the degradation in the frequency across distance, and then passive end devices that just kind of leak all the time. It's actually kind of crazy that it works out so evenly that their analysis showed that, and it's, it's rough, you know, obviously there's, there's margins here, but that a third is lost in transmission and just leaking at the edges. A third is consumed by us, is actually gets to where it needs to go when it needs to get there and is actually used by a consumer. And then a third is just produced at the wrong time and wasted, purely wasted, just thrown in the trash, uh, curtailed, sent into the ground, whatever it is. And what's crazy is when I first realized this and I first talked about it on the show, my thinking was that, and this leads us to the next point about Bitcoin's energy consumption, is that it can use curtailed energy. Back to the fact that it's progressless, that you can just turn it on and off at any time. It's a big, it, Bitcoin is a buyer of last resort. It can always use any energy. So that entire third essentially like virtually this is obviously theoretically and it would require an insane infrastructure and bitcoin would have to be immensely valuable for it to actually pull this off but it could theoretically use up the entire third of the of the global energy map that is completely wasted if you could get the miners to those locations and plug them in when that when that energy is being curtailed or lost and that problem gets worse with renewable energy, not better, and actually not just a little bit worse, like a lot worse. That problem is exacerbated quite a bit by, the, by renewable energy sources because the sun doesn't care when you want to watch Netflix. The river doesn't care when you want to you know, use chat GPT. The wind doesn't care. None of these things can be controlled. They are explicitly passive. They are either provided by nature or they are not. We can't go turn the windmill on higher in order to deal with the fact that too many people turned their AC on. 
it is specifically a non-controlled energy source, which means that not only do we need load balancers and not only do we need ways to make use of wasted energy, we're going to have a lot more wasted energy and we need a far greater, something that can go to far, far greater scale of load balancing and curtailment management. So not only do current solutions for this not work, but we need something that works for the problem that we have today, plus the far greater problem that we are building for ourselves right now. So that was always one of my main focuses, is the, the incredible potential in utilizing that wasted energy. But there's actually another element there. Is the third of the energy that is lost because of delivery? And it's something that I hadn't thought about in depth, or, I, or at least I'd thought about like kind of in a cursory way, but it, it really just hadn't struck me or maybe I'd just forgotten about it and it struck me again when I was reading this article, when I was reading Stranded by Alex Gladstein, that one of the powerful things about the situation in Bundu and what Gridless is able to do is that it's able to stabilize and make sustainable a far smaller set of infrastructure, a far smaller grid that otherwise wouldn't make economic sense, which means that it can actually help with that other third. Not only can it help with the energy that has to be curtailed, that is lost in waste simply because it is produced at a time when it cannot be consumed, the Bitcoin network is ready to, be cons ready to consume that energy whenever the hell those kilowatt hours are being created. But it can also shrink the need for the scale of the infrastructure, which means the energy lost in transmission can be diminished as well because we can balance at smaller scale. We can actually have small grids like places in Bundu, small villages, small, you know, towns and villages out in the middle of nowhere that have one energy source, one renewable energy source. They would necessarily have tons of curtailment and necessarily have an insurmountable balancing problem. It can actually balance that, make it economically sustainable at a smaller scale so that the transmission doesn't have as far to go. And that portion of the lost energy can be decreased from 30% to 25%, maybe 20%. While the other third of just lost because there's not, it's not produced at the right time can be completely eliminated in whatever place uses this setup because they can just turn on as many ASICs as they need whenever the electricity is provided. And something else about this local phenomenon, the fact that you know all energy sources are disparate, the prices are different. The details of trying to get them to the consumer are different. Like where they are has nothing to do necessarily with where the consumer is. Another one of the key characteristics of Bitcoin is that it's geographically agnostic. Not only does it not care what time of the day it is or whether or not it doesn't need some specific consumer there to use it immediately. Bitcoin is a 24-7, 365, any second of the day I'm ready to consume. And any other second of the day, you can cut it right off. Well, it's virtually that same sort of arrangement when it comes to geography. It doesn't matter where, what distant, weird corner of the planet that you can find an energy source. As long as you can get a wire to that location, or you can see the sky, all you need is a very, very limited internet connection, and you can mine anywhere on Earth at any time of day or night. Again, something that Bitcoin can do that almost nothing else can do. 
certainly not at the same time as the other benefits that Bitcoin can give. And this is one of those things that also makes it an incredible subsidy for going, seeking out and finding energy sources that would otherwise, it would make no sense. If you're a thousand miles away from the nearest customer, from civilization, there's absolutely no reason whatsoever to go source and find an energy source out there. Because if you can produce electricity out there, there's nothing you can do with it. And it would cost 30 times the amount of infrastructure and in capital investment to even reach the customer than it does to tap into the energy source at all. Which means that when you're looking at a dynamic like that, when you're looking at something that's so far out from civilization, the problem isn't even the energy source. The problem is getting the energy from one location to another. Bitcoin mining being location agnostic. You can go out a thousand miles into the wilderness, you can tap into some energy source, and you can plug miners into it immediately, and then you can spend years trying to figure out how to get the infrastructure hooked up so that it can reach its consumers, or you can wait for the consumers if, if there's some location 200 miles out that you actually think are going to be ready for consumers at some point that you're predicting is going to be a valuable location for some reason or other. You can already build out the power. You can build out the power for even a decent-sized city before it even gets there and already start making money. This is kind of in line with uh, what Brandon Quidham talks about in his piece, uh, uh, A Bitcoin is a Pioneer Species, about how it actually changes the dynamic of settlement because we can actually make energy profitable before we reach the place where the energy is. We do not have this travel problem of the electricity itself. And it also makes it an incredible natural subsidy for renewable energy sources. Because this, these are exactly the sorts of energy sources that just, they're just where they are and there's nothing we can do about it. If the wind is blowing really great in some plains that are 200 miles away from a city, well, that's where we have to put the windmills. We don't really get a choice. And let's say it takes two years to build out the windmills. And, you know, it's a... $100 million investment. But it takes four years to connect it to the nearest civilization where it can be used by consumers and only 20% of the energy can be used because the wind doesn't blow at the right time. And the four years of investment in the infrastructure to get the electricity from where the windmills are to where the, con uh, where the customer is is going to cost $200 million, and it'll be six years before that can pay you anything, and when it does, it's only going to pay you for 20% of what it's producing. That is an awful investment. Nobody is going to do that. I mean, think about it. Would you do that? If you had $1,000 and it was going to pay you $5 a year after you put all of it on the line and potentially could lose all of it because it wasn't going to give you anything, and you had to wait seven years before it paid you $5? Would you do that with $1,000? Why the hell would you expect someone with $200 million to do that? They didn't get rich making stupid decisions like that. They got rich making good investments. That's a bad investment. I mean, imagine investing in a car manufacturing plant 
where only 20, like 80% of the cars you produced, you just had to throw away for some reason. Like they just came out of the machine wrong and you just throw them in a landfill or crush them again and turn them back into raw material so you could try a different time. One out of every five cars was actually viable. Who would invest in that? Nope, that's a, that's a horrible, horrible business plan. Now, let's add Bitcoin into the mix. It's $100 million, two years to set up all of the windmills. And the second it starts producing kilowatt anything, you can mine Bitcoin with it. With every single bit of it. And for the four years that you build out the infrastructure to connect it to a consumer that's going to pay you you know, 40% more or maybe even twice the price for the electricity because you're getting a discount or you're giving a discount for the Bitcoin miners that come in. For those four years, you're already starting to make your money back. Let's say at the end of it, if, all, if it all goes to plan, the windmills will pay you. And let's be generous. Let's just say it's a 10 years to uh, pay off, to, you know, 10 years to in the black for the entire investment. And it's $100 a year. You're getting 10% back for the thousand that you put in or, you know, 10 million back for the 100 million that you put in. And for the first four years, you would normally get nothing and you would hope and pray that as you invested 200, more, 200 million more dollars into it to get it to the customer, that nothing went wrong and got the entire thing shut down or that it didn't all go belly up because of an economic disaster in that seven year or six year time span that just had your financing run dry and you got 60% of the way through the project and you never even saw a dime. Instead, for those first four years, instead of getting $100, you were getting half of that from Bitcoin mining. And even better is if you could hold on to the Bitcoin, maybe the Bitcoin appreciates during that time. Then you spend the four years and you actually, your costs have actually come down in investing in the infrastructure to get it to the consumer because now you don't have a problem finding a buyer. The Bitcoin is always a buyer who is right there ready and willing to buy your energy whenever you can produce it. But here's the really cool thing. Let's say after you do those four years, you get it connected into the infrastructure, you get it connected to a city, and now you're selling it to actual consumers who are willing to pay the going rate, a, a higher rate for the electricity from your windmills. And now you're getting, you know, you can trade it, trade that $50 for $100. But you're still only selling a portion of your energy to that consumer because there's a bunch of freaking windmills that don't spin when the consumer turns on the TV or when they turn on their air conditioning. It just spins whenever the hell it wants to spin. So not only are you getting paid in the lead up to subsidize, naturally subsidize, your endeavor from the very beginning, but even after you're plugged into the customer, you can still turn that $100 return into $120 because you can sell all of the excess energy that you would have lost, that would have been wasted, still to the Bitcoin miners. You can just offload some of the Bitcoin miners. They can ship up and go to some other renewable plant that's in the middle of an investment to make that one profitable so that one can actually have a chance at existing and make an investment, make an, a return on the investment. And they can still leave like half of the miners there to consume the energy whenever the people turn off Netflix or cut the heat off because it feels really nice outside and your windmills are still turning. Well, that's when you use your little automatic load balancer to turn on the ASICs and you get some Bitcoin. So not only can you sell all of the energy immediately, but you can mitigate the waste and the loss just in the normal operation 
of the inefficient, unreliable, renewable energy sources that we are literally multiplying across the world that have a very significant load balancing problem and a huge addition to our energy waste. If we don't have Bitcoin in this mix, if we don't have a use for this wasted energy, it is renewable energy sources that are going to waste staggering amounts of energy. Without Bitcoin, renewable energy is a dumb idea. This episode is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Honestly, there's no better way to buy Bitcoin than to just ignore the charts, ignore the price, and just buy regularly all the time. The prices are going the price is going to respond to leverage. The price is going to respond to daily events. It's all noise. It is literally all noise. On a three to four year timeline, none of it matters. It is a long-term investment. And the simplest strategy is to just buy and hold. It's to just accumulate, to just save in Bitcoin and get out of dollars that are slowly and constantly devaluing all of the time. And Swan Swan Bitcoin, it makes that as easy as it can be. But you can buy every week, uh, every month, every paycheck, whatever you want. You set up your interval and then you set up the threshold that you want and you can have it automatically sent to your cold storage. You can have it go directly to your hardware wallet. I have a multi-sig setup where Swan just pays out automatically all the time. I don't have to do anything. And that's just the beginning of what they offer. They have a multi-sig vault. They can, you can set up in just a couple of minutes, you can set up an IRA and start allocating with your retirement. You can do Swan Private if you want to, if you want handheld, like you want someone there all the time to answer your question, to pick up a real human, to pick up the phone when you need help or when you are confused or concerned about anything. They will be there with Swan Private. You want to buy regularly, you want to buy uh, automatically, or you just want to smash buy up to like $10 million. You can do that on Swan. They are an entire financial suite. Anything you want to set your business up with a Bitcoin treasury, not only do they have the services, but they also have all of the knowledge that you would need to just go and figure the things out, figure out how to do your hardware wallet, to understand why Bitcoin only. Check them out at swan.com guide. That is my link. It'll be right there in the show notes. You'll be happy that you did. And that actually leads me to another great quote from this piece. It says, quote, Bitcoin is often framed by critics as a waste of energy. But in Bundu, like in so many other places around the world, it becomes blazingly clear that if you aren't mining Bitcoin, you are wasting energy. What was once a pitfall is now an opportunity. Bitcoin miners can be thought of as dung beetles, scraping up the waste energy that no one else wants and transforming it into something valuable. And it's important to note that Gridless isn't the only one doing this, and unused wind energy and solar energy and hydro energy is not, is not the only source here. Like, almost every energy production very, very few of our energy production mechanisms can be easily turned on and off. Load balancing with an ASIC is faster than most of the load balancing with the actual, you know, turning on and off of the energy source when that is available. Nuclear is another great example that's by far the most energy dense, needs the least amount of fuel, land mass, I mean, by like orders of magnitude of every possible energy source that we have. And when you turn it on, you can't really turn it off. Unless we're talking about a liquid, a liquid uh, fluoride uh, thorium reactor, which I think only China has. 
because the U.S. basically put that on the table, even though it was more ordered, like way more efficient than the the crappy nuclear power plants that we have. Uh, they tabled it back in the 50s or 60s, whenever it was kind of like on the rise, specifically because you could not make nuclear bombs with it. And they wanted an output that they could actually make nuclear bombs. They wanted to be able to enrich uranium and plutonium. So they specifically chose to invest in the infrastructure that has the crappier, more dangerous, and uh, far less efficient energy source. Like most of the, even despite the incredible density of nuclear fuel um it the overwhelming majority of the potential fuel in it with fuel rods is actually thrown away that's why it's radioactive for an incredibly long time and the fuel is still insanely dangerous is because you get like i, I can't i can't remember the statistics but it's somewhere in the 90 percent. 90 percent of it is lost we only use like a few percent of the actual energy that is technically there in the in the nuclear fuel Whereas the liquid fluoride, the liquid fluoride uh, uh, salt reactors with thorium is actually like, I think it's in the 90s in the opposite direction, where we actually consume upwards of, you know, 95%, 97%, something like that, of the actual possible nuclear energy in the fuel. And it just so happens that the output is also less dangerous and less radioactive, specifically kind of because of that. But that's all to totally beside the point. What I mean to say is that nuclear is kind of a, you turn it on and it goes. So if people aren't using their AC or, you know, asking ChatGPT any particular questions today, it's not like we can go just be like, all right, we'll turn off the nuclear stuff. We can't really do that. And honestly, even if we had a uh, thorium salt reactor, I don't even think that would happen. You would probably just try to figure out some sort of use case. You would try to figure out some sort of a load balance or like Bitcoin mining to make up for it. You could cut off a thorium, uh, a thorium salt reactor by removing the fuel because of the way it actually uses it. But you would probably only want to do that during an emergency. So that's one of the, uh, one of the other benefits of a thorium reactor is that it wouldn't melt down. You, you, could just start, you could prevent it from doing that by just cutting off the catalyst. But anyway, that's all beside the point. All I mean to say is that nuclear is generally a turn it on and run. So nuclear has the same problems essentially as renewable, except for the fact that the energy output is consistent. So it's not like you have to guess when or how much energy you're going to get out of it. But there's actually a lot more energy sources that are viable that just get lost because they're far too small scale or they're not transportable. A great one is flared methane. So in oil wells and honestly wells for all sorts of stuff, in mining operations, natural gas just gets vented off in a lot of different situations. But the venting of natural gas is not, it's a crazy greenhouse gas and you just don't want natural gas. So what they end up actually doing, because you can't capture it, it's not in a great enough quantity or regular enough for it to be captured or economically put into a tank or whatever or shipped somewhere it just immediately becomes you you can't you can't sell it at a rate that pays for all of that transport or anything so you flare it this is this is what if you ever see the you know the shots in the movies or whatever it is there's a you know a big oil well thing sticking up and there's a big pipe and there's just a flame off the top of the pipe and it like dots the landscape that flare is the natural gas coming out of the well that has to be burned off in order to just 
try to make sure that most of the natural gas doesn't just go out into the atmosphere. But that burning is not very efficient. I can't remember the statistic or whatever it is, but a significant amount of it doesn't get burned. But that's energy. That little fire is electricity to anybody who can figure out how to capitalize on that. And who better to do so than somebody who can buy that energy at any time of the day, any day of the week, any second, cut on and off at will without any sort of a hiccup or loss in progress and can geographically go wherever the hell that energy is, wherever they can find that little flame, they can cap that, put it into a generator, which will far more efficiently burn it because it's in a controlled environment running a generator. You can actually like burn like 98% of the natural gas so that it's, it's actually as clean as it possibly can be as dealt with from the context of natural gas. And then you can use it to mine Bitcoin. Another psychotic statistic that I heard, which the amount of uh, energy, the amount of hash power on the uh, Bitcoin network has changed since then. And I think this is a two-year-old statistic or something, maybe. Uh, but it was during the whole China thing. So it was like 2021, I think, when I read this. Um, but that there is enough flared natural gas. And there are already people doing this. Like, there are live companies not only that are going around doing this um but sites that are operating like this regularly and they are expanding uh, and there are large companies that are working uh in the uh norwegian states i think is there's some company that's really kind of pioneering this if if i remember correctly i might be mixing it up with the ones that are mining uh for heat in greenhouse gas uh greenhouses um but there is some sort of a, a big oil company it's a significant name, and I'm not going to just say it out loud because I'm going to get it wrong. Uh, but it's one that you might actually recognize um, that is partnering and basically doing proof of concepts for this at a lot of different wells. Uh, and then there was a, a statistic that I believe it was in Saudi Arabia that just the number, the amount of vented methane in all of Saudi Arabia, if you plugged all of those vents... You put them into generators, you clean burned, you, you far more efficiently burned that energy, burned that methane, and you use it to mine Bitcoin, that you could actually double the hash rate. You could match the entire energy consumption of the Bitcoin network, and not only would you have not wasted one ounce of energy, the entire thing, the entirety of that energy would have been something that was already wasted that is no longer wasted, that is used to defend and create an impenetrable, incorruptible money. And even crazier, it is better for the environment because it's better to send it to, to do a more complete burn through a generator than it is to just flare it off at the top of an oil well. Again, just like the situation in Bundu, this would be a program that would explicitly clean up an externality of oil drilling while getting paid to do so. No subsidies, no taxes, no political favoritism, corporate favoritism, corruption involved. Just plug some miners in. Good for the environment. Good for the Bitcoin network. Good for energy production. And that's one thing that's really crazy about all of this is the feedback. Is that as we realize that Bitcoin mining fits 
into this niche everywhere in the world that this potential lies, which is massive. Because again, we lose more energy than we use. Like the amount of energy waste is staggering and Bitcoin can eat all of it. The really crazy thing is that the more Bitcoin does this, not only is this better for our energy stability, our grid stability and our load shedding, not only does it help us provide energy at smaller scales that weren't possible before, not only does it help us subsidize renewable and less reliable energy sources, not only does it make profitable energy sources that are way, way away from civilization and actually could never make investment sense to plug into an energy grid or to find a customer, and not only does all of this secure a money that cannot be cheated and solve the problem of monetary slavery for the people who can get access to this and use this technology, for once having a fair monetary system where the only way to trade with someone is to literally trade with them. You can't cheat the accounting system to just steal their stuff. But at the same time, all of it makes Bitcoin stronger and more decentralized. It is a positive feedback loop, not only for the electricity, not only for the energy production, not only for the disparateness of the energy production mechanisms itself, the energy sources, not only does it balance out prices of disparate energy sources and different production mechanisms, but all of it makes the Bitcoin network stronger and more decentralized and more valuable so that we can use it in more places around the world to profitably benefit energy production in all of these ways. Now, everything that I have been talking about is end of the line sort of stuff. It's, it's, it's extended out 10 years, 20 years, infrastructure, people realizing this and utilizing this. And it also kind of requires multi-million dollars per coin to actually work because the larger you scale this out, you know, as soon as you double the hash rate, let's say the price stays the same at 40,000, 43,000, whatever it is right now, and you double the hash rate with all of the methane and uh, methane flaring in Saudi Arabia or something. Well, at that price, that means the return on all of the other investments essentially get cut in half, unless the price doubles to $80,000, which means the more valuable we want Bitcoin to be, or the more we want Bitcoin to serve this role and to be able to solve this problem in more places around the world, in more you know, nooks and crannies for disparate energy sources and disconnected renewable um, production, we want Bitcoin to be more valuable so that its purchasing power can be extended along a larger hash network and in more corners of the world, which means we specifically want a million dollars of Bitcoin. We want $5 million per Bitcoin because that is when it can balance every grid in the world rather than just the one in Bundu and the ones in Texas and essentially where those networks and those use cases have popped up so far. So there is a limit to this, but the limit is Bitcoin's value proposition. And it's not as if none of these things have costs. It's a huge, it's a huge endeavor to set up, you know, well... I mean, comparatively speaking, it's not a huge endeavor, but it's not as if, you know, you can just take a pickup truck with a couple of ASICs and then you, you plug them in and you're done and you, now you have a balanced grid. But this is an insanely opportune technology that fits into a couple of different 
really incredible pieces, slots in the puzzle pieces that are needed to, to provide reliable energy at a reliable and sustainable cost to balance that out. Nick Carter, I believe, in uh, the piece, The Last Word on Bitcoin's Energy Consumption, which is phenomenal. I'll, uh, I'll have that in the notes as well. Um, in fact, I'll try to get a collection of maybe like seven or eight of the articles that I think really do a great job of breaking down the energy argument. Uh, but Nick Carter had a phenomenal visualization because a lot of people think that Bitcoin mining steals from consumers or whatever, you know, that like, oh, Bitcoin miner plugged in, it's going to steal the energy I need from my refrigerator. No, Bitcoin is always fighting for the lowest cost energy possible. And the more people who add hash rate, the lower the price of the energy needs to be for it to be profitable, which means that it aggressively will seek out the most wasted of wasted energy that is out there. And it will always... It will always push further out the more people figure out that this is valuable. The more people f figure out this is a, a, um, a way to utilize. Like methane, flare to methane is a perfect example. What would likely happen if the price of Bitcoin stayed at $43,000 and people really figured out how to you know, plug all of those methane, um, uh, flared methane uh, oil wells and quote unquote double the hash rate, is that probably the hash rate would only go up by 30 or 40 percent because what would actually happen is 30 to 40 percent of the hash rate would have to cut off because they would not be profitable. Anybody that is in the consumer level price of energy for their mining would not be able to compete with somebody who is getting zero dollars per energy with a flared methane mine. So the analogy that I loved with Nick Carter is uh, that Nick Carter gave in the, the piece of Bitcoin's, the last word on Bitcoin's energy consumption, is to think of the world, because, because energy is, not, you know, is a local thing, there are hot spots and there are low spots. Right? Like there's free energy at a Saudi Arabian oil well with methane, and then it's super expensive in the middle of a city. Or it's super expensive out in the middle of nowhere with no infrastructure and you know, you need a couple of solar plants or solar panels and it's not reliable and you only get, you know, energy for some certain period and it's 80 cent, 90 cent per kilowatt hour, which was an example used actually in this in Malawi that the break even rate was 90 cent per kilowatt hour because most of the energy just wasn't even deliverable. So you think about this dynamic as a topographical map where 90 kilowatts per 90 cent per kilowatt hour is you know, huge, tall mountain, and then there's zero dollars, zero cent per kilowatt hour, you know, methane flaring that's like a big valley. And that those geographies, rather than mountains and hills or whatever really relating to the actual geography, it's mountain and hills related to the access and cost of energy in those locations. What Bitcoin mining can do as the buyer of last resort, someone who can use up all of the energy wherever it is, and necessarily those places in the troughs, that's where the, the greatest amount of energy waste is typically found because it cannot be economically utilized. Granted, the peaks in cost often has a lot of waste too because it's, it, a lot of times, I guess it's not really a strong correlation, but it's probably loose. But you can think of Bitcoin mining 
as if you poured a glass of water over that topographical map, and it's going to settle in all of the places where the energy cost is low. And you think about it, those costs aren't even necessarily at some specific location. It's also at a time of day. So, you know, when the windmills come on or the sun is shining, suddenly what was a big mountain now becomes a valley. And the crazy thing about Bitcoin is it can shift like water quickly from one valley to a next. Because without any trouble, you can turn off those miners where it becomes too expensive and you can turn them on where it becomes cheap. It can dynamically shift where it's utilizing energy to account for its price and its difficulty in delivering it, even if it's just at a time of day. This is why I like Michael Saylor's analogy of this. Is that everybody talks about like this, the ultimate solution to the grid problem and to energy production would be a brilliant battery, right? A battery that was completely lossless and uh, it virtually had no limit in the amount of capacity that you could put into it and could easily transport electricity from one location to another. Well, we actually got what we needed, but in a different way. Rather than a battery in the sense of storing and communicating the electricity, we actually got an economic battery, one that could store and transport the economic energy, the economic value of that energy, where that energy is being wasted. And it literally does so with all of the characteristics we would want with an electric battery. And all of this doesn't even start to talk about the incredible potential of utilizing the heat. Because the heat is the only waste, it's the only externality of the Bitcoin miner. And a perfect example is my house right now, upstairs, I am running a miner in the attic that is keeping the upstairs warm so that my wife and my son are comfortable and I am making a little bit of Bitcoin every single hour. And one of the crazy things about it is the cost of the infrastructure, the cost of the unit itself. So one miner, probably two miners, is really what I need to heat the upstairs in a way that I could control it with a thermostat and uh, easily you know, toggle the power or toggle the, the normal high or low mode, the, the amount of wattage that the miners are using. And that even if it got down to like five degrees or, you know, in the negative degrees that I could keep it completely warm up there. Like when it has gotten down to like 15 degrees or 17 degrees recently in some of the nights, um, we've had to cut the fire on during the night, which we have a gas fireplace in order to compensate because it will get down into like the low 60s because I only have one miner. But here's the really crazy thing about this setup and where it really saves the cost. And this is another example that was actually really great in, this, in the article, Stranded, that we just covered by Alex Gladstein. So I want to read this quote. It says, This coming March, the heat from Virunga's miners will be harnessed to dry cocoa beans. Traditionally, this is done by laying out the beans to roast under the sun, where they are vulnerable to the weather and being eaten or stolen by animals. Drying the beans with the hot blast from the miners will dramatically expedite the process and for minimal additional cost. 
Instead of spending $200,000 on an industrial drying operation, the park rangers simply bought $200,000 worth of ASICs that can process cocoa and earn Bitcoin. Moving forward, if any of their competitors process cocoa and don't mine Bitcoin, they will be wasting energy and they will be less competitive. And this is really the crazy thing is I know I have gas. I had, excuse me, I had a uh, heating unit that was gas. It does not cost as much to run that. In fact, it's probably half the cost, maybe even a little bit less than running the miners. Granted, I'm pretty sure I make up that and a little bit with the Bitcoin that I get. So I'm spending more for electricity than I am for natural gas, but I am getting Bitcoin to make up for it. And I'm probably close to breaking even. So it's not an actually, it's not, a, unless I'm specifically trying to earn Bitcoin or I specifically want KYC free Bitcoin, I want uncompromised Bitcoin. It's probably not super economical because I have access to natural gas, which is a very, very cheap way to heat a home. But here's the thing. My heating unit broke and it was going to cost me $7,000 to replace it. The miner that I have up there is 1200 bucks, And I'm pretty sure today I could get it for like 800 or maybe even less. I don't even know. Which means that even if I was losing money, how many years would I have to lose money in order to make up for the enormous cost and waste and the energy? Understand that cost just is related to energy. Like, I'm not saving on energy because the energy needed to make the natural gas-based heater is hidden in the $7,000 price tag. It costs way more energy to make a giant heating unit, natural gas heating unit, than it does to make an ASIC. That's literally why it's cheaper. So how many years would I have to lose money on it in order to make up for that? And I don't even think I'm losing money on it. I think I'm just making it all up in Bitcoin. But I'm actually going to do the, the hard math on it. It won't be perfect because I don't have, I, I've added some new things to the energy mix and I've also started heating the basement where that's a purely additional cost. I wasn't heating the, the crawl space before it was a basement. Um, so I'm heating a lot more. So it's going to be really hard to have concrete numbers on it. Like part of the reason my energy cost has gone up may literally just be because I'm heating twice the square footage. And then in addition, I built an AI machine that I use that, that I kind of run a lot. And that thing's got like a like a 1800 watt power. Like it's, it's almost a miner. Granted, it's not running like a miner. It's not just churning away at all times all day. But it's kind of like plugging in another refrigerator probably. So I use a lot of energy. So it will not be a perfect comparison to last winter or the winter before that. But I will have rough numbers and I can probably I can probably just stay on the super conservative side and do the calculations and find out how much I'm making back in Bitcoin. And I'll try to do it without even the the growth in the Bitcoin price, but just like flat what's Bitcoin worth according to my hash rate and compared to the amount of heat I'm getting. I, I genuinely think I'm coming out ahead. And that's before we account for the fact that I have you know, a roughly $6,000, $5,500 ish uh, runway before we're talking about actually 
even sl slightly losing money on it. So the really crazy thing is how much one little miner, how much heat that thing puts out. But what's really cool about the potential infrastructure alternatives for everybody who doesn't have, th think about it, as, if, as soon as we're talking about um, electric heat, anybody has electric heat, there's no question. There's no question you should absol absolutely have a miner. If you're paying electricity prices to heat your home, 100% you should have a miner. A miner, an S9, is going to do better than your electric heater. Now if you go out into rural areas that only have like kerosene, now you're talking an even better situation, a better economic comparison that can use even less efficient ships in order to heat the house um, more efficiently. And uh, that's what Zach Bomsta and what they're doing in Unbounded Networks, uh, they're trying to specifically target that, go out to rural areas that where kerosene heat is actually the dominant form because it's even more expensive than your typical electric heat and have a way to build out small networks of miners with, in, in rural communities. And this wouldn't even be an upfront cost. This would, or a, you know, is it profitable or not? This would explicitly be a way to just reduce the price of heating. But in the case of the drying cocoa beans, in cases of greenhouse gases, the, uh, greenhouse, greenhouses and keeping them warm during the winter or indoor, any sort of indoor farming that needs to stay warm. In the case of a friend of mine who lives here uh, that will dry uh, cabinet wood and, uh, you know, polyurethane, like lacquer and like these sorts of things, they literally use them to, I, mean, I, I know someone who actually does this. They may even listen to this podcast. Hey, what's up, dude? If he listens to this episode, he knows who I'm talking about. But he does a bunch of woodworking and stuff, and he, he genuinely has to dry them out. And so he sets up like four miners aimed at the thing, and it dries it out in no time. And what's funny is I had the, uh, so for those of you who have been keeping up with it or saw me on Noster or Twitter or whatever, probably saw that my basement flooded when we had a really bad rain, and I lost a bunch of stuff, and uh, I lost a book, I mean, excuse me, a box of Bitcoin books and a lot of, like, stuff that I really liked, electronic gadgets and whatnot. Well, I actually tried to dry out the books, and what's funny is I, I didn't lose the miner down here because I actually had it lifted off the ground, thankfully, um, and so what I did is I literally lined them all up in front of the miner. This is a big, long stash of books just sitting out on the floor, and I used the miner to dry them out. Granted, none of the books are really salvageable. They all kind of look like they bloomed. Like, they're all, they're all just like... It's, it's like if a book could turn into an afro, that's kind of what they look like. But imagine you have to spend $200,000 on an industrial drying operation... Just spend $200,000 on miners instead. Like, you have that cost anyway. It makes no sense. In fact, you might actually get away with a situation like my own, where it was going to cost me $7,000 for the heating, uh, for the normal heating unit, and for the equivalent, it only cost me $1,200. Or I guess maybe if I really want to be fair, because... Uh, that the gas heat would have done great during the 15 degree nights. So let's say I need two of them and I specifically still needed the ones that I had and I got them for the price that I got. Well, then that means it would be $2,400 to 100% for sure know that I would produce all the, the same amount of heat that the gas heater uh, or unit would have been able to produce for me. 
So going back to the situation of the cocoa beans, maybe they can spend $100,000 and actually dry the same amount of cocoa beans. So what's funny is that the cherry on top of all of this is that you can use the heat for stuff. And going back to the idea of the trough and mountains of different energy costs, at the end of the day, using, utilizing the heat for something is a way to lower your cost. In the, in, the, in the same sense that the fact that I'm utilizing the heat means that the sats that I get from the miners are completely arbitrary. I'm just using it for the heat. And in the context of the cocoa drying operation, quote, moving forward, if any of their competitors process cocoa and don't mine Bitcoin, they will be wasting energy and they will be less competitive. Everywhere that uses not only everywhere that wastes energy, not only everywhere that has an unreliable renewable energy source where it's disparate between when it's produced and when it's consumed, not only in flared methane where nobody can use it for anything, but even everywhere you have electric heat. If you are not mining Bitcoin, you're wasting that electricity because you're only using it for one thing. Whereas if you are mining Bitcoin, you can use it for two. You can use it to secure an incorruptible money and make your heat. There's a spa that heats the pools. Uh, to solve an article and like they made a video about it. I know somebody that's setting up miners in order to do uh, heating for a, uh, an apartment complex. And they're, they're renting out and they're making money off of the heat going into the rental property, drying cocoa beans, drying tea leaves. Uh, I, I know people who are doing it for jerky. In fact, I actually am kind of thinking about doing that myself with the S9, but I'm going to just make a space heater first. I mean, just imagine any use that you can have for heat, water heaters. There's a company I know that actually contacted me trying to figure out where I was because they wanted me to be a test subject so that they could basically be their proof of concept. They're doing water heaters, but they're doing it in Europe. And as soon as I told them I was in North Carolina, they were like, oh, damn it, we can't do it. And I was so upset. That would have been so cool to have a water heater that was mining Bitcoin for me. And even think about a closed loop system, a, a system that could actually utilize one or the other, where you can be heating your house or heating your water heater or the, the systems where they would actually run water through that, like the, the water itself, the, the heated water would be the source of heat for the house. You know, you run warm water through the floors and that sort of stuff. There's all sorts of ways you can better utilize this and take advantage of the heat to make whatever you are doing that much more economically sustainable. And what's crazy is that you can knock out your competitors because they cannot match the price by which you can do those tasks. So I want to wrap this up, but I want to thank uh, our sponsors, our supporters, Audionauts, everybody who you know is a fan of the show. Really, guys, thank you so much for sharing this out. Um, and a thank you to CoinKite and Swan Bitcoin for supporting this show and making this what I am able to do. I love this. And I get the opportunity to learn this at a depth that most people just do not have the time to consume and explore all of this. And it's, it's largely because of all of you. So I just wanted to give a shout out to everybody who allows me to do this. But getting back to it, so we can wrap this up. Let's go back to the initial claim. 
the idea that Bitcoin wastes energy. This is almost universally touted by people who have no idea what Bitcoin is and cannot explain why it exists or even why it works. It requires them to think that Bitcoin is valueless, which straight out the gate, I think, completely just nullifies the whole argument. They know nothing about what they're talking about. The, the argument isn't that Bitcoin wastes energy. Their argument, their, the entire premise relies on the fact that Bitcoin is worth nothing. Therefore, no energy should be spent on it. And I think that's the more important thing to address with most people because that's the underlying premise that they work from. But on the notion that it wastes energy, we have every real-world example that I just mentioned in this episode. We have Bundu proving the case of scaling down grids that the Bundu electric grid is more stable and more reliable than the national grid because of the Bitcoin miners that they have automating off and on load balancing. That it is the perfect tool, the economic battery, to save and utilize in an economically sustainable way and subsidize unreliable and disparate power sources naturally, without the corruption, without the politics, without the bureaucracy. Bitcoin does not waste energy. Bitcoin saves energy from being wasted. It explicitly seeks out all of the staggering amounts of wasted energy in our mess of an electrical and energy system, and it uses it up in an economically viable and efficient way. And it does so while securing a money free from corruption and inflation. It obsoletes crappy fiat money already, and it will obsolete all of fiat money on a long enough time span. And it has the potential to save billions of people from the aggressive, unbelievable devaluation and theft of the people who control the monetary system. All while the fiat system uses staggering, staggering amounts of electricity to keep it afloat and is defended and expanded by a war machine that encompasses the globe. So to the contrary of Bitcoin wasting energy, Bitcoin fixes energy waste everywhere it can be deployed. And every ounce of energy and capital that we put towards fiat should be put towards Bitcoin instead for the sake of the environment, for the sake of our energy stability and future, and for the sake and for the sake of human prosperity. Fiat is waste, and Bitcoin fixes it. I am Guy Swan, and until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satisfied. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. C.S. Lewis